Accessing library computer data. Level 9 authorization required. Command codes verified. Welcome to Moms Going Boldly, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Moms Going Boldly is two moms who love Star Trek and who also happen to have children on the autism spectrum. We talk about the new Star Trek Discovery TV series, as well as any autism issues we see along the way. I am your host, Elizabeth, and with me is my co-host, Vicki. Hi, I'm Vicki. We are Moms Going Boldly. And welcome back to Moms Going Boldly, where today we're going to talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 7, Unification 3. Did you like this episode, Vicki? I did like it. I almost went back to watch unification one and two just for ha-has but uh, i ran out of time this week yeah you know i gotta tell you i actually on watching this again didn't like it that much no yeah so we can talk about that as we go along here so this episode starts with a voiceover again orienting us to where things are uh this season and it's burnham talking about how she no longer feels at home Um, on Discovery. But what's interesting, I thought, about this personal log voiceover was that while she was talking, we were seeing images of her having now an intimate relationship with Book. Right. Which is sort of like the juxtaposition of her saying how Discovery doesn't feel like home, but behaving in a way that tells us that she has found a home. Yes. In a relationship with Book. Yes. So I thought that was an interesting way to start. As the story went on, looking back on it, it it irritated me. (laughs) And you might remember I said that somewhere down the line, she does irritate me. Yeah. Well, this was a moment for me. I felt, well, number one, they all came there for her. So I'm still on that. Yeah. But it's a good place to be. Yes. But I felt, number one, she seems to be so overly dramatic about everything. Thank you. In this episode. (laughs) Um, Thank you. You know, she doesn't feel like this is home. But it almost feels like it's all a reaction to Saru demoting her at times because she seemed all right with it. She said he made the right decision. But later on, she seemed a little hostile about it. You know, and and I agree with you 100%. And the thing that I think that bothers me is, is that once again, as we've talked about before, in this season, we seem to have inconsistencies in character. Yes. With these characters. There's created drama with these characters that is, you know, in this particular case, it got on my nerves in this episode. She is a graduate of the Vulcan Science Academy, as we're reminded in this episode. Right. She was raised on Vulcan. She was raised with logic. She knows that a move to 900 years in the future is going to impact her emotionally. She knows that the year that she couldn't find the discovery is going to impact her emotionally. Does she do any of the work that logic dictates should be done with her human self to help her manage this? No. She whines in her personal log about how she doesn't feel like she's at home. Right. And somebody who hasn't watched this and just watching this episode would think, I would anyway, that she's just acting like a spoiled child. Yeah. And to me, after all that she's been through and all that we know that she's accomplished, this feels not consistent with the character that we know who she is and where she's Right. And I really hate to think because one could think also she knows Book doesn't want to be there. Is she changing her whole life because Book doesn't want to be there? Which is fine, but then she needs to say that. Right. Or is she convincing herself 
that she doesn't fit in because she wants to go to wherever book wants to go. Which is fine. Exactly. That's a different conflict. And for me, that's where the kind of the writers fail. She could have a conflict about whether she wants to stay or whether she wants to go to book. That would be a great, normal, reasonable, rational conflict to see her engaged in, in, in a story. Right. Even when Vance asks her to go to represent Starfleet and she says something like, I'm not in the right mind to represent Starfleet. Right. And again, why aren't you using the tools that you were raised with to help you get into the right mind? Right. He just wants her her expertise on Vulcan. He doesn't need her to recite the Starfleet Charter. Yeah. Okay. So enough of us whining about the whining. (laughs) (laughs) So this particular episode, we're focusing on this new piece of data that they have acquired in the previous episode, Scavengers. They've got another black box, which with that data, they're able to determine that the burn did not occur at the exact same time throughout the galaxy. It actually occurred at different times on different ships, which suggests that there is a point of origin and that they can then figure out that point of origin using triangulation with all this different data that they've gotten. Unfortunately, the three black boxes that they have are not enough to help them in a three-dimensional environment. They can triangulate in a two-dimensional environment, but not a three-dimensional environment. And so they discover that there is another data set available uh, from an experiment called SB19. Mm -hmm. Um, One really great moment while they're doing this exposition about the data and the triangulation and the realizing that the burn didn't happen simultaneously is a really cool moment where Tilly calls her on her crap. Yes. I love that moment. Yes, Tilly did step up and call her out on it. Yeah, which I thought was awesome. And that was an appropriate response. And I was really glad that Tilly didn't let that just get shoved under the rug. Right. So that was really cool. So Saru and Burnham take their data to the Admiral, and the Admiral says SB-19 belongs to the planet formerly known as Vulcan, which is now called Navarre since Unification, that Spock in those Next Generation episodes, Unification 1 and 2, had been working on 900 years, 800 years in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, It had finally happened, and they called themselves Navarre, but they had also removed themselves from the Federation, much to Saru and Burnham's great shock. And so then Vance has this great idea. Spock's sister can go and ask for the data because they respect Spock because of the work that he did for reunification of the Romulans and the Vulcans together. And like you said, she resists this idea. It's weird. Yes. She's the one who's so gung-ho about finding out about the burn. And she made a face like a spoiled child. Like, oh, Uh, rolled your eyes. He gave you a way to deal with it. And you were like, "Um, no, I don't like that. Yeah. There may have been a good reason for this, but it wasn't clear to me as the viewer no, why it, this this seemed to be inconsistent with what she wanted to do. And and an opportunity, again, you know, she's been jumping out there at every opportunity to say, We gotta rebuild the Federation, we gotta rebuild the Federation, we gotta rebuild the Federation. And when given an opportunity to go represent the Federation as the sister of Spock to the planet formerly known as Vulcan, she's like, Oh yeah, no, I don't wanna do that. Right. It was very strange. Yes. Very strange. And I'm kind of wondering, again, what the writers had in mind. Yeah. It does give her an opportunity to sort of revisit the idea of her brother, which I thought was great. She went back and she watched a classified archive of Jean-Luc Picard, which is essentially a replay of, like, I think the final scene from Unification mm-hmm. 2, um, where Spock is talking about how he's got to stay there and he's got to do this work. And so that was kind of a nice thing. And I thought that was a really nice scene where it kind of gave her some closure on losing her brother. Yes. And so I, I, I kind of really like that. 
there was a fun line from that book was there while she was watching this video of her brother and he said something about them both being chronic overachievers which i thought was kind of a funny line yes that was the one line i wrote down (laughs) yeah it's cute so meanwhile saru is talking to tilly and he says he wants her to be his acting first officer in place of do do we even need to go into this this is just yes I mean, I can hear you, and your noises are the same noises I'm making in my head. What? (laughs) So, would you like to go first? Well, all right. First place, he's making her acting first officer, but he's not giving her a promotion. Let's get that out of the way first. What the what? (laughs) So, last week, when we were talking about Saru's leadership skills and how you said he was working in a vacuum and he didn't think to talk to Vance. I believe all that, but I do believe that Saru, being Saru, is just so rigid in taking an order that he didn't consider Michael's suggestion because he had his orders and that was it. Yeah. Where you know that orders can be questioned. I mean, I'm not saying go around questioning orders all the time, but when presented with new information, that needs to be considered. Absolutely. And that's actually a theme we see in Star Trek throughout all the series. And that is that these Starfleet officers, while they respect the chain of command and respect the necessity of following orders, are also empowered to ask important questions when moral, ethical, even expediency issues are in play. Exactly. It's not in subordination to question an order when presented with new information. Exactly. And that seems to not have occurred to him at all. But, and on the other side, he is rigid. But he's also, and I said this before, he's leading by emotion. Yes. He knew Michael didn't want to take that position, but he's living in the past when they were all, you know, family and trusted each other. And he expected that same relationship, to have that same relationship here. Last week, when Tilly said she might have done the same thing, he said, I know you wouldn't. But he doesn't know that. He's running on emotion. Yeah. And making Tilly his first officer, which, number one, is ridiculous because she's an ensign. You know, Lieutenant Nelson, is that her name? The one he leaves on the bridge when he has to leave? I don't remember. The one who used to be Arium, the blonde? I don't remember. My bad. Well, I mean, I think she should have been next in line. Number yes, but, thank you. Um, or any number of bridge crew absolutely. Who, who are higher in rank, who have just as much experience as Tilly, who could be first officer. But he wants somebody who's his friend, who he feels comfortable with. Which is a big mistake. Yes. That's not the qualifications for a first officer. And as a matter of fact, if you remember, and I know you do, when we first met Jean-Luc Picard in The Next Generation, he was looking for a first officer who would argue with him. And the reason he picked Will Riker was because Will Riker argued with his captain about going down on an away mission. Yes. And that was the qualification of first officer that Picard was looking for. Apparently that's not what Saru was looking for. And which led to a brilliant question from Tilly. Is it because I'm qualified or compliant? Right, exactly. Brilliant question from her. And by the way, beautifully acted because she asked that question clearly not wanting to hear the answer. Yeah. I I was like, oh, that's really good acting. I feel her discomfort. Yeah. (laughs) It was amazing. So I agree. You know, if she is the one who's qualified, then you promote her. If she is not promotable, then she is not first officer material. Exactly. Exactly. We're going to pause right here for a quick break. We'll be right back. Hey, Dud Gramley here from Yeah, That Can't Be Good 
Doug here from the 13th Warehouse. If you are a fan of Eureka, please join Kim, Vicky, Skip, and myself over at Yeah, That Can't Be Good for an episode-by-episode podcast of all things Eureka at EurekaRewatch.com. If you're a fan of Warehouse 13, please join Kim and Vicky over at the 13th Warehouse at the13thwarehouse.com. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit us on Twitter at Eureka Warehouse. And we're back. Meanwhile, we get to Navarre, and the president of Navarre, is that what she was? Yes. The leader? Tarina. Anyway, she, Tarina was her name, she appears on the bridge, she says, welcome, you know, your appearance here is impressive with your new technology, our long-range sensors didn't see you coming, and oh, by the way, we're not going to give you that data. Right. So then Burnham invokes to call in Ket. She says, I am a graduate of the Vulcan Science Academy, and I invoke the to call in Ket, in Ket, which is a philosophical process designed to unearth deep truths. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which I first wrote space law on my notes. Like it was going to be like a like a trial. Yeah. Space law. Yeah. But then as things went on, I realized this is really not a trial. This is more like a PhD oral dissertation defense, a thesis defense. That's what it was really like. And instead of having her PhD advisor on her side, instead she got her mom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> who served as both mom and therapist. Right. And I think maybe this is why I like this episode. I think it's because she finally finds her mother. Okay. And I got to tell you, I like that, except that I didn't. And so we can talk about that. <laughs> I get so it. So when she does this, they set up the Calumcat, which is going to take place on board the ship. And there are three members of the Vulcan Science Academy who are going to come and listen to her argument about why they should give her this data. And she also has her own, they call it Chassette, which is an advocate, except that it's a member of the Kowat Milot. Now, we meet the Kowat Milot in, in one of the very, very early episodes of season one of Picard. Right. So I remember, I saw enough Picard to see that before I walked away. I really like the concept of this group of people. They're very cool. It's very creative, cultural creation, not to be repeating myself there. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a sect that function on the precept of absolute candor, mm-hmm. which for humans is really, really hard. Right. Because a lot of times we take our uncomfortable feelings and we bury them and we wrap them up in rationales and excuses and explanations, etc. And so that was one thing I really liked about this episode was how Gabrielle, her mom, unpacked some of these deep feelings that she was pushing to the side and wrapping up in Christmas wrapping mm-hmm. and not talking about. What I didn't like about the scene with this argument that her, her her defense, her dissertation defense that she was doing was how she actually didn't do anything. True. I mean, she didn't do anything. You know, they were like, well, we read your arguments and so we don't like them. And then there's just a whole this sort of blah, 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 blah about her feelings. You know, maybe it's the lawyer in me, but I was like really looking forward to an actual debate about the data and an argument and clever, you know, analyses, etc. And there was nothing. No, she regurgitated the same information that they already had. And, and then it all became about, well, you're the Federation and we don't trust you. <laughs> so, okay. Anyways, I found that kind of disappointing. And I kind of felt like it was a construct to get Burnham into therapy. That's the way it felt like to me. You know, again, on behalf of the writers, you know. We need Burnham to express her deepest truth so that she can be connected back to discovery. She needs to go through catharsis. Because, you know, and in a way, that's not a bad framework because that's what happened with Saru's 
dinner party gone wrong is there was a lot of catharsis there, which was a very realistic and good scene for the crew. And Michael never really got that, at least not with the crew. And here she is having to do it in front of the Vulcans and the Romulans and, and her whole crew, etc. And it just felt, I don't know, a little awkward and a little contrived to me. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know. What do you think? No, I could see that. Did it work for you? Well... I don't really understand what the point was. I, I understand that as writers for the episode, they were trying to make her see what her problem was. But I don't yeah. understand what that really had to do with the presentation she was making. Exactly. I think her mom acting as, you know, the goad and her therapist was was brilliant. I mean, how she did it and what she said was wonderful. I loved Gabrielle in this episode, but the whole framework felt really, really, really weird. There was also a scene in the middle of this where Tilly goes to Stamets about the, his request that she serve as first officer, which I guess she went because she, I think she has the most complicated relationship with him and she needed to know if he was going to listen to her. Well, I think, <laughs> yeah. And I also think she feels, you know, she knows that there are other people that should have this job. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is everybody going to resent her for taking this job? Yeah. And so his response is that he thought it was deeply, deeply weird. Right. Which I don't think was very helpful. You know, in his defense, they were called away. I'm hoping he had more to say. So it was interrupted. Right, it was. So anyway, this, the Callan Kett and the quorum of the three people that she's talking to, it wraps up when Michael has this catharsis that's prompted by her mom. And so then it starts to all fall apart. And the Romulan representative says, well, if you're not going to give her the data, we will. And the Vulcan representative is like, we're not going to do this because we don't trust the Federation. And the middle ground representative is like, we need to talk about this some more. And Michael realizes that her request is going to actually cause chaos on Vulcan, and she doesn't want that. So she actually formally withdraws her request, which apparently is like a, I mean, the impression I got was that by doing this, she essentially was taking on a kind of personal humiliation. Did you get that feeling too? No, I thought it led them to believe that. Oh, I agree. But at the beginning, the president said something to her, like, if you don't win, this is going to reflect on Spock forever. Oh, oh, okay. I see what you're saying. And so by essentially withdrawing her request and losing, she was taking on, she was essentially taking on a personal humiliation for the sake of saving Vulcan. Okay. That was kind of the sense I got. And then, of course, that's not how it was viewed. And I really actually liked all of the Starfleet people when she left the room stood that was really cool. Yeah. So that was this really cool sign of respect for what she did. And then the president, because she had said, you know, I'm doing this as a Starfleet officer. You have my word that I'm not going to be doing something that's going to tear apart your world. We're done here. We'll figure something else out. And when we find it, we'll send it to you so that you know too. And because of that, the president gave her the data, which was nice. Yeah. Which we knew was going to happen at the end. And then Gabrielle comes to see Burnham, and that's a really nice interaction with each other. And she says she's going to stay there on Vulcan with the co-op a lot. And that, you know, if she ever needs her, she knows where to find her. And so there's some resolution there between mother and daughter. And then there's a scene where Tilly goes into engineering because Stamus has called her down there. And all the bridge crew is there, and they're all telling her to say yes to the job. And I was just really that scene really bothered me. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Again, to make this work 
for all these people who should have been in line for first officer, who should have been considered, who should have been evaluated for their qualities, you know, saying, oh, yeah, you were okay with this. Yeah. It, it was so contrived. And I think that goes back to them being this one big happy family. And as much as we're both right that there's so many other people that should take this job, it wasn't offered to any of them. So they're going to make her feel... They're going to be cool with it. They're going to make her feel good about herself. Yes. <laughs> and much. you know what? More power to them. I think that part's awesome. But again, it's sort of like, you know, I'm in the writer's room in my head saying, okay, we're going to make this okay by having all the bridge crew say, say yes. Right. And then Burnham um, comes in and says, did I miss the say yes? <laughs> yes, exactly. So it was all like planned. That yeah. even made it worse. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then the very last scene is Burnham's back with Book, and there's some question about how their relationship's going to move forward, but they say, you feel like home, which goes back to the very first where she's saying that Discovery's maybe no longer her home, and, you know, she's with Book at the time, and, you know, in the scenes that we're seeing, and so we see visually that she feels like she's at home, and so then they bring that back around at the end with you feel like home. Right. And that's the end of the episode. Yeah. You know what? There have been a lot of great, great episodes in this season. And I think it's okay for them to have, you know, a stumble. (laughs) And I think this is the stumble. (laughs) It happens. You know what? You can't be awesome all the time. Yeah. And like I said, I think my opinion of it is clouded by the fact that she finally finds her mother. Yeah. Well, and I actually remember the first time I saw it really liking it. And so the second time I watched it, when I watched it with a different lens, I realized I didn't really like it that much. It, it's just not very, well, like we talked about, there seems to be so much that's contrived in order to move it forward. And so that was disappointing the second time around. Because the first time around, I was thinking, oh, yeah, it's like space law. I, re- I you know, it was a trial. And then as I watched it, it wasn't with lawyer eyes, waiting for actual arguments to <laughs> convince me, oh, there really weren't any. <laughs> yeah, and I remember liking this the first time I watched it, too. But like I said, I think I'm just clouded by the fact that she finally found her mother. Right. And the mom scenes were actually the strongest scenes in the episode. I agree with that 100%. Yeah. They were really, all of them were really good and strong and well-written. Sometimes, you know, the reasons for them seem strange, but the scenes themselves were good. Anyway, cool. Well, that's it. That's what I've got on this one. You got any other thoughts? The only thing we should mention is when they were talking about the three black boxes that they had from the three ships. One of the ships was the USS Yelchin. Oh, yeah, I didn't pick that up. Well done, my friend. And that was for, obviously, Anton Yelchin, who was Chekhov in the Kelvin movies. You know, I just recently was watching the Kelvin movies again. Yeah. They're all available on Paramount Plus now. Yeah. They really are the same story over and over again. (laughs) I know. I just rewatched all of them, too, yeah. (laughs) Did you have the same thought? Um, Yeah, I guess they are. Because, you know, you, when you watch them back to back to back, yes, you realize it's just the same story. Yeah, it is. Oh. And I hate how the, every time they're in a fight or a battle, the Starfleet person immediately loses their gun. Immediately. And every single time there's a hole blown in the ship and someone's blown out into space. <laughs> Which the first time it was really cool, but the second and third time it's like, oh, oh okay. <laughs> I couldn't remember Yelchin's first name. Anton, so I, yeah. Yeah, so I was looking it up. And like I said, I try not to read too much because I don't want it to cloud my opinion. But somebody mentioned that this is the first episode of Discovery that verifies that we're in the prime timeline. And I didn't really ever think that there was a question. Interesting. What proves that? Because of Spock and unification, I believe. And because Vulcan's still there. Yeah. 
because in the other timeline, in the Kelvin timeline, Vulcan was destroyed. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah. I actually did think of that. You're right. Absolutely. I did think, oh, Vulcan is there. Therefore, it wasn't destroyed by Captain Nero. It never occurred to me that there was a question at all about which well, timeline we were yeah, in. Yeah, but you can see people who like to analyze this. And True. you and I probably would have asked that question eventually. So um, <laughs> they would ask that question. It, and and that's one of the things I actually really liked about the Kelvin movies was because it did set it in a separate timeline, which gave them a whole lot of freedom for creativity. Well, and are they going to do another one? I think they said they're going to do more. I heard that. I hope it's with the same cast. Yes, I, I actually do like the cast. I think the cast is very good in yes. the, the Kelvin movies. I yeah. think they do, do the, the roles justice. Yeah, but it's been a while, so you know who knows if they can get the same cast back. Right, because these people need to keep working. Right. All right, well, if there are no other thoughts nope. on unification, nope, then we will wrap this up and ask our listeners to join us for the next podcast when we talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 3, Episode 8. The Sanctuary. Okay, see you next week. All right, see you then. Bye. You can continue exploring the universe with Moms Going Boldly by following us on Facebook at facebook.com slash momsgoingboldly and on Twitter at momsgoingboldly. The music used on Moms Going Boldly is Without Limits by Ross Bugden Music. On Twitter at Ross Bugden, licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license, creativecommons.org. You can listen to Moms Going Boldly on Podbean, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM. And we're now also available on Apple Podcasts. Transfer complete.